Welcome to 21. I'm Drew Lasker. I'm a family man, professional athlete, and business owner of Train Harder 21 and 21 Media. Yvonne Harris and I have teamed up and created this podcast to explore the life lessons that come along with being an athlete. Y21 is my jersey number and a key part to my great fortune and career. So it seems fitting for this podcast. Hi, I'm Yvonne Harris. I'm a proud boy mom and an advocate for efforts that improve the lives of women and children. Experiencing success as an athlete or in any facet of life does not happen by accident. There must be clarity, intention, and the willingness to pivot. Our guests on 21 share their journeys in ways that cause you to reflect, assess, and then take action. We are so thankful for the stories shared on this podcast because Drew and I know their wisdom shortens someone else's path to success. Enjoy this episode of 21. Welcome to another episode of 21. And Yvonne and I had the pleasure this summer of launching our foundation, 21 Foundation, in which today's guest was of guest of ours. So we're excited today about sharing his foundation, which he is the co-founder and executive director of 8 Million Stories. And today, 8 Million Stories is a nonprofit that works to close the gap for traditionally underserved youth in Houston, particularly those disconnected from school and work. Their mantra we believe all young people have the potential to become lifelong learners, earn a family sustaining wage in their career, and actively participate in civic society. We welcome on the show today, Marvin Pierre. Marvin, welcome to 21. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. All right. Now, before we get started, we want to put you straight into the hot seat and with a little game we call 21 questions with 21. So, I mean, you from New York and we've actually had a couple of guests from New York. So we know that you're used to the pressure. So no pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do it. Just going straight in. Whataburger or In-N-Out? Uh, In-N-Out. Beer or tequila? Uh, tequila. Beach or mountains? Mountains. Twitter or Instagram? Uh, Instagram. Tupac or Biggie? Oh, Biggie. Gotta go with Biggie. Jordan or LeBron? I'm a LeBron. Say what? Popeyes or Chick-fil-A? Uh, Chick-fil-A. Las Vegas or Miami? Miami. Action or rom-com? Action. IHOP or Waffle House? IHOP. A layup. East Coast or West Coast? Oh, East Coast. That's right. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Car or truck? Uh, truck. Netflix or Hulu? Netflix. Sprite or Dr. Pepper? A Sprite. Summer or winter? Uh, winter. Xbox or PlayStation? Uh, Xbox. Dishes or laundry? Uh, dishes. iPhone or Android? iPhone. Homemade or takeout? Uh, takeout. And finally, are you a club guy 
or more of a house party? House party. You are now off the hot seat. Oh, thank goodness. (laughs) (laughs) There are some things I expected, Marvin, but a few that caught me off guard. I agree. You are a true New Yorker. I mean, oh, you yeah. like the winter time. I mean, I am a little bit disappointed with the uh, water burger in in and out. Yeah, I'm not a water burger guy. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I can't warm up to it. I was Man. shocked about takeout over homemade. Yeah, takeout. Takeout. I mean, I love eating out. You know, New York City. I mean, but I also love a home cooked meal. You know, like can't go wrong with that. And we, you know, your, and we your know. questions, your answers, Marvin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, but that's great, man. We, 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 we kick off the show getting to learn a little bit more about you. But, you know, this podcast here, it's, it, it features former athletes. So, of course, we got to touch on, this, on the sports aspect of it. So did you grow up, growing up in New York, the mecca of playground basketball, did you play any sports growing up? Yeah, I played three sports. Um, I played football, which was my main sport, um, and then picked up basketball in high school. Uh, I was in no start or anything, but I just I had I was just a good defensive player. I played basketball at prep school in uh, Massachusetts, and then I ran track as well. I was a um, three sport athlete. Okay, so what is your street ball game like? Are you more the defender? You're a oh, shooter. D- you're a driver. Defender. Yeah, <laughs> definitely not no shooter. Oh man, ah uh, man, I, I was a I, defense was my thing. I, that's what I was known for. So, right. Well, I mean, to be fair, there's not you know when you think of the perception of New York, New Yorkers yeah. aren't really known as shooters anyway. They're known to get into the cup. So, you know, yeah. if we needed to, if we needed to slow them down, we'll put Marvin on them. So. Exactly. That's good to know. (laughs) Well, you you also attended Trinity College in Connecticut and then also U of H later on in your life. And just talk to us a little bit about what you majored in and how did you decide on your area of focus? Yeah, um, I went to Trinity College, uh, graduated in 2006. I was an econ major and um, concentrated on economics. Mainly, Uh, I grew up uh, poor in New York City. And so um, one of the things I've always um, going through school um, aspired to was, you know, always being able to be financially comfortable. Um, and so I've always targeted like jobs that, you know, I knew would want to, you know, would pay well. Like my first goal was to be a pro athlete, realized second year in college, that wasn't going to be my reality. But my interest in economics and business and finance came from when I was in prep school. Um I had a chance to be, as I mentioned earlier, football was my main sport. I got a, a scholarship to go to uh, a prep school in um, Cape Cod. Uh, and that pretty much gave me, you know, really changed my life. But what it really did was it exposed uh, me to a wide range of individuals who came from all walks of life. And my best friend, um, you know, when I was in prep school, his dad was an investment banker. And I remember going to his house I said, you know, wow, you live really comfortable. And I said, what does your father do? And he was like, my dad's an investment banker. And I had no clue what a banker was, but because of how he lived and how comfortable his lifestyle was, I aspired to that. And I just kind of like, you know, ran with it. And, you know, the rest is history. So after Trinity College, Marvin, is that where you went first was to NIB, an investment bank? Yeah, I worked at Goldman Sachs. Uh, So when I was in Trinity, uh, I got my first internship when I was 17, uh, 17 or 18. 
uh, that summer going into my freshman year of college. So I worked at a private wealth management firm. I uh, learned about stocks and mutual funds, et cetera, and then got into uh, interning on Wall Street starting my freshman year and just never stopped. I inter- interned at several Wall Street banks, and then I ended up getting a full-time offer the summer of my going into my senior year at Goldman Sachs. So I had a job before I started my senior year. So everyone listening to this podcast, we know that everyone has their individual journey, but there are common points of success in the career path. And Drew, how many times do we hear about internships? I mean, every single episode, pretty much and the grind and the hustle of, and most of the time it's been, you know, free internships as well. So um, that is definitely a common denominator here on the 21 podcast. Out of curiosity, Marvin, the, I guess, father of your friend who was the investment banker, was he someone in your network that helped you to get an internship? No, it it was, uh, it was crazy. You know, I just, I I occasionally talked to him, but I didn't like, you know, talk to him about investment banking. What got me the opportunity was another good friend of mine in prep school. His mom was the CEO of an investment firm called Phoenix Investment Partners. And so I told him, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, you know, you think your mom would be able to give me an internship or something like that. And I literally just sent his mother this crazy email talking about all the jobs I had. I was like, hey, I used to, I worked at McDonald's. I worked at a factory where, you know, I was like around people who had criminal backgrounds and this was their re-entry job. And, you know, this, I was just kind of letting her know I was a scrappy kid and I worked really hard. And she responded to me and she was like, yeah, I connect with you. You know, I also worked, you know, at McDonald's and I also worked at an ice cream shop and look at me now. And she was like, we would love to get, give you an opportunity. And the day of my prom, I got a call that I was going to get um, an internship. And the crazy thing was, you know, the amount of money that I was being paid at like 18 years of age, it was through the, like, I was making a thousand dollars a week. And that was more than like some of the people that lived on my block. And, you know, for a young kid, it was eye opening. You know, my, one of my jobs was to, at that firm was to read the Wall Street Journal every single day, front to back and be prepared um, to be quizzed on and then on anything that was in the um, paper that day by my mentor, who was also like my boss, who was like kind of like teaching me things. And the parallel from your journey already that we share is McDonald's. That was my first job at 15. Oh, yeah. and I went in busting suds and I remember being in there, being really proud about it and being saying, I want to be the best dishwasher that's ever yep. come through McDonald's. So you know, it's great to see that we share that little parallel there. Well, Marvin, yep. I didn't work at McDonald's, but I'm smiling that you remember the day of your prom and yeah. you remember getting that call the day yep. of your prom. So yeah. I think that means that that was kind of like a life-changing moment for you. You yeah, remember I, I, was, I was shocked. I was, I was in my dorm getting ready and, you know, my phone rang and they were like, this is, you know, Phoenix Investment Partners. I'm such and such with HR. I want to let you know we're going to give you an internship. And I think I was going to make like, 13, 14 bucks an hour. I was like, what? I've never made that. Most of my jobs were like 575, you know, like tops, you know? And I was just like, gosh, I'm going to make some good money. And they even gave me a travel stipend. So I got free Metro passes. I was like, I'm living a life here. So, you know, it was, it was, um, it was a really good win for me because, you know, I just think, you know, even till this day, I always just think about my life and, you know, my parents are Haitian immigrants. And so, you know, my story is not supposed to play out this way. And so the fact that, 
you know, I reached that milestone as a kid from Queens, South Jamaica, Queens, going to this prestigious uh, prep school with all these affluent kids uh, to be able to walk out my senior year with the internship. Um, that, that was a huge accomplishment for me and a huge boost to my self-esteem in terms of what I could do with my life. But that's the beauty of your story, Marvin, is that it is supposed to play out like this. Yeah. And um, we need more young people, periods, but specifically Haitian Americans and Haitians hearing yeah. your story. They need that inspiration. And um, we're glad you're sharing it with us today. So let me ask you, you were working at the investment bank, making good money since yeah. time of the intern. So what was your epiphany? What was your moment where you said, it's not about the money. It's not about this grind. I have something else I'm supposed to do. Yeah. So in 2008, um, I was probably two and a half years in working at Goldman and, you know, really was trying to question whether this was what I wanted to do. Um, nothing against the firm. It was just for me, you know, I was really trying to still, I was realizing, I'm like, all right, is this what I want to do? Cause I, every summer that's what I did. Right. I interned on wall street and I was like, is this, you know, is the, is the hype already, you know, over and I'm like not really feeling this anymore. And essentially, so in 2008, we had this housing crisis and, you know, everyone's losing their jobs. And so I ended up losing, getting laid off. And I'm at, at this point, I said, oh, well, crap, you know, this is the first time I'm going to have to look for a job, you know, and, and possibly in a different industry. And so I used that downtime to really think about what I wanted to do. And my best friend, uh, Shantae Agard, one of my closest friends at Tabor, which is the boarding school. I went to, and I'm now a trustee there. Um, she called me up and she was like, listen, I know you don't have work to do right now. You're not at work. You're at the house. You need to come and talk to these young boys in my school. Uh, my, my boys don't take school seriously. They misbehave. And you come from where they come from. You look like them. And we don't have any male figures in our schools that can be role models and influences for them. And so she thought my story my upbringing and how I overcame and beat the odds would inspire these boys to essentially make better decisions. And so I agreed to come in and talk to the boys and, you know, ended up sharing my journey. It went really well. Um, and after, as I was, once I was done with the talk, I was kind of like hanging out and waiting for her day to end. And I stumbled on the, uh, on a chart that she had up in her classroom and it had the boys on one side and the girls on the next and next to the names of the kids was a number. And I said to her, I said, Shantae, what does this number represent? And she said, that's their reading levels. And so I looked on the side of the boys. And this was a fifth grade class that I was just talking to. And the highest number I saw was a three. And I knew for those young boys that I had just spoken to, that for many of them, many of them would actually drop out of high school or not graduate from high school and also have a higher likelihood of being involved in the criminal justice system because mo many of them were not reading on or, or above their grade level by the third grade. And so I realized that for me, there was probably going to be a bigger calling on my life. And one big thing that happened to me in prep school that um, I didn't touch on was um, my transition into prep school was really tough. Uh, so I was coming from the inner city and I go into this very white, uh, very, um, you know, affluent community and student body um, environment. And I, I was an outlier, right? I was really struggling to figure out my identity and then also adjust to the academic rigor of going from a regular school in the inner city of Queens to a very intensive, highly rigorous academic curriculum at a prep school. And so that learning gap 
was really tough for me. That transition, rather, was really tough for me. And my school noticed that. And as a way to kind of hopefully get me on track so I could actually succeed at the school, they reached out to one of the local, I guess, community members and a big fan of the school and support of the school, uh, Dr. Sam McFadden. He was the only, he was one of the few African-Americans in the town that my school resided in. And he was also the head radiologist of the local hospital. And they said, hey, we've got a kid from New York. We think, you know, you could connect with them because Dr. McFadden was also a native of the Bronx. And so I met him. Fast forward, you know, life-changing experience. Um, you know, if it wasn't for him, you know, I wouldn't be speaking you all to you all today. He literally you know, saw potential in me when I didn't see it in myself and really groomed me into the young man that I am today. And one of the things that bond special moments we had together was we spent a lot of time in his garage, cleaning out his garage. He had this huge garage full of junk, full of stuff that was never even open. I was like, talk about just hoarding and just wasteful. Dr. McFadden was it. Um, and uh, he, his, his task for me was every time I came over for the weekend, we would work at uh, on cleaning out the garage. And it was one day we were wrapping up and he said, Marvin, I want you to know something. He was like, I want you to know that, you know, you're going to be really successful in life, but I always want you to remember no matter how high you climb up that ladder of success, always reach up back to pull up another person. And I never knew where that would play out in my life. Uh, Dr. McFadden ended up passing away of pancreatic cancer on my first day of work at uh, Goldman Sachs and a month before my birthday. And I always was really trying to figure out, like, how do I keep his legacy alive? And it wasn't until I walked in that, walked in that classroom and I stared at that chart and I said, this is what he's talking about, you know, paying it forward, lifting someone up. And so I went back home that day and literally sent an email out to everyone in my network. And I said, I'm going to I want to be in education and I specifically want to work with African-American boys um, and really help young boys of color overcome something that I think every one of us who grows up in an inner city or really up challenging um, upbringing uh, is the ability to dream past what you see every single day in your community, right? If I grow up in poverty and I see nothing but crime, it's very hard for you to convince me that I have a life on the other side of that, right? When all I see is negativity. And so I aspire to that. If I see somebody trying to shoot their way through a hoop to make it out the hood, you know, and, and accomplish success, then that's what I'm going to do. If I don't see a doctor, if I don't see an attorney, it's not what I'm going to aspire to be. And so I, I set out to essentially really help keep Dr. McFadden's legacy alive, but also really have a bigger influence on, on the narrative of boys of color in the education space. Well, I know Dr. McFadden is seeing what you're doing and yeah. he's smiling on you. So Amazing. you have definitely done that. I do want to ask though, Marvin, um, I think your term was, you mentioned you had a learning gap. Did you struggle with reading as well? Uh, no, not struggle with, with reading, but I was not a great writer. I remember uh, my first uh, essay, personal essay that we had to write uh, for class. Um, I got it. I was, when I tried to come in, when I went to Tabor um, in my inner city school, I was actually like a A minus B plus student. So I, I thought I was pretty smart. And so I get to Tabor and I had a personal essay to write and I get it back. It was a D minus. And I said, uh, you know, Mr. Marr was his name. Uh, really great guy. Changed my life as well. I said, oh, this must be a mistake. I was like, how did I get a D minus? He said, you got a D minus. You can't write, but that's OK. I'm going to make you a better writer. And, you know, I spent 
for probably half the school year, every morning I would have to go for 30 minutes before class to start and then 30 minutes before practice in the afternoon and do just journal entries. And like he would give me a writing prompt and I would have to write and he would correct it until I got better at, at writing. And so, yeah, um, it wasn't like a, like I was academically, like I had a lot of academic like learning deficiencies. It was just the rigor of the academics was on another level. It was really college prep type of work. And I said, wow, like most of my classmates had already taken like algebra one and like, it, it was just a different level, like pre-cal, like I was sitting there like, oh gosh, let me, you know, reevaluate my life, you know, because like, did I make the right decision coming to the school? Because, you know, it's going to be hard for me. And I remember my sophomore year, which is the year that I went, we were, there were 72 kids in my class. At the end of the year, my ranking was 70 out of 72. I never forgot that. Nowhere to go but up. Yep. yep. And it's actually, again, another parallel. It sounds very similar to kind of my journey. I, I, I grew up in Europe and then I moved back to the States and most of my family is from Brookshire, Texas. And in the eighth grade, I moved to Katy, which is only seven miles down the road, but Brookshire is more in the inner city. And I remember when I went to Katy, how dumb I felt because from an academic standpoint, I felt like I was so far behind from the other kids, in particular, the vocabulary. And so for me, I remember thinking, I need to figure out a way to catch up. And maybe this is the athlete in me. And every day I would go and I would try to learn a new word in the dictionary. And so over time, I was able to catch up to the curriculum there at Katie, but 8 million stories. And so talk to us a little bit about why 8 million stories and why the name, which I found fascinating on researching you. Yeah, the name comes from a group, a hip hop group called A Tribe Called Quest. And they had a song called 8 Million Stories. And at the end of the song, it's kind of this repetitive phrase, help me, help me, help me. And when we think about our kids, um, kids in the CPS system and our juvenile system, um, just overall our most vulnerable um, and marginalized populations of youth, you know, a lot of their behaviors are a cry for help. And oftentimes those cries are not heard or answered. Um, and so um, we thought that was a great connection to the work that we were doing, essentially where we were trying to, you know, provide disconnected youth who came involved with the juvenile system uh, an opportunity to complete their education, develop the critical job readiness skills that they need, but most importantly, address some of the social emotional development needs that often get in the way of them being successful in life. Um, in the city of Houston, prior to the pandemic, we referred almost 12,000 kids a year to our juvenile system between the ages of 10 to 18. And many of those kids don't get to go back to their community schools because they've been labeled as troublemakers. And so being able to create an alternative pathway for those young people, you know, I think something that I take great pride in and uh, I'm really proud of the work that we've been able to do to turn the lives of uh, many children who have come through our program around. Yeah. And, and for a lot of us that come from the inner city, it's just about the opportunity. And a lot of times, you know, we don't have the resources to provide opportunities for ourselves. So someone like yourself and your organization is changing many lives. And just talk to us a little bit about um, your major outreach programs. Yeah, so uh, we focus on helping kids get their GED. And so usually working with young people, 16 to 21, who are overage and undercredited and um, 
getting a high school diploma is pretty much not a realistic option for them. We want to fill those gaps in helping kids um, get on the track to being successful and either pursuing post-secondary education opportunities or attending a career technical school. We do job readiness training where our kids work to get certified in industries such as retail, restaurant industries. We also do warehouse, digital uh, logistics and construction. And we're also building an IT platform or pathway, career pathway for our students as well. And, you know, we work on providing students with um, the wraparound services. And so we have a behavioral specialist on site um, that works with our students. We have case managers that provide them with opportunities to address some of the things that extend outside of the school that they need support with, whether it's housing, food, um, just money to transport, go back and forth between school and home and any other needs that they have. Um, one of the things that we really shifted in our program, traditionally when we first started, was just really about trying to get kids to get a GED and get an entry-level job. But we realized that that is not going to be enough to really break some of these generational curses that our young people often find themselves stuck in. And so we shifted our programs to really focus on putting our kids in a position to break generational poverty. And our big push has been going to send kids who come through our program to go to college um, or career technical schools. And we were really fortunate this past year to really kick that off. We had six of our kids get admitted into colleges and, you know, really, you know, proud of the work that we're doing and the lives that we're changing because we're just thinking bigger and bolder for children that pretty much are written off by our community. Yeah, and that was amazing when I came across that, in particular, the class of 2021. You guys have sent a couple of them to college, and and so it, it's so inspiring. But just talk about a little bit of some of the tough moments that you have to deal with within your work. Yeah, um, I mean, you definitely have a lot of kids that come through, and not every kid makes it through, right? You always wonder about that kid that it's out there without an education, without the resources that they need to be successful. Um, and I often think about a lot of my kids. I think about, you know, my one of my students in my first group, uh, Patrick Mitchell. You know, Patrick was a great young man, amazing personality, uh, was a pleasure to be around with and, you know, was really doing a lot with his life and, you know, got caught up in some stuff in the streets. And, you know, like when we had that ice storm in Houston, uh, in Texas, you know, he um, had an altercation with a young man outside of a team club and, you know, apparently they fought it out and he thought it was over and then turned his back and went back into the club. And as he's walking back, he got shot nine times. And, you know, that wow. was one of the first kids we had to bury that I personally like was like, yeah, this was, this wasn't a kid that was in the gangs. He wasn't in the streets heavy. He was just really trying to do right and leaves behind two beautiful young girls um, without a father. And so, you know, that's one of the, the tough deals um, that we have. And we have a lot of our kids who, you know, went through our program and just made some really poor decisions and now are, you know, serving some longer sentences and, put, and, and are incarcerated for a much longer time. Um, and, you know, it, it, that's the things that you struggle with and that you wish you can get another chance with to, try to redirect kids. Um, but, you know, when you're a small program like 8 Million Stories and you're trying to build everything and you're trying to do it with urgency because you don't have enough resources, you don't have enough funding to fully staff out your organization. And then you also know that you're racing, you're competing against the streets. So every day that, you know, that kid is coming to you, you got to make sure that you're inspiring them or motivating them to stay on the straight and narrow. 
and the streets is undefeated, you know, because they've got so many more resources that they can throw our way. You know, they can see those kids 24 seven and, and, you know, really deter kids from the, the track that they're on. And so, you know, it, this is hard work. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's the thing that keeps me up late at night is just thinking about the kids that don't show up and, and what are they doing when they don't show up for, for school. Well, Marvin, you're definitely in it for the long game. So um, you are going to beat the streets. It's just going to take some time. You have time on your side in a lot of respects. Um, it may not always seem that way, but over the, the course of your program and the number of people that you've touched, there have been a lot more wins and there have been losses. I know that your organization focuses primarily on young men, but the pandemic shifted some of that focus to issues impacting young women. Can you describe the reasons for that shift? Yeah, we had a lot of our girls coming into our program during the pandemic and a lot of them were pregnant. And so um, that was eye-opening for me. And what I wasn't like, it wasn't the fact that they were pregnant, but the fact that they lacked a lot of resources um, and had a higher number of need and they were just really in some toxic relationships. And so I felt, you know, that was going to be something that we needed to concentrate more on in terms of providing resources for them and giving them outlets to get connected to uh, peer mentors or mentors in general that could really help them develop and go through that experience of motherhood and really have a strong understanding of how to raise a healthy and smart baby um, and be a great mother. Um, because oftentimes we know you know, a lot of the, the habits that our children pick up is generational, right? If you grow up seeing your mom do things a certain way, you're pretty much likely going to pick up those habits. And so how do we really educate our kids to really make sure that they're making good informed decisions on how to raise their children, but also how to be uh, uh, the best parent that they can be. And so that's something that I think if we have a way to do that successfully, that could be a game changer for the future of our, the um, generations that are to come. I want to spend some time here, though, because there are a number of untold stories that have come out of the pandemic, and I consider this to be one of them. So when you say that you started to see young women who were pregnant, were these high school aged women who got pregnant during the pandemic? Maybe they were not in school. They were schooling from home. Like, tell us more about what you're seeing. Yeah, it was mainly um, young women who were high school age, uh, had dropped out uh, because they either got pregnant or, um, you know, they were just home a lot, you know, and it, it, that was one of the biggest things. We saw a high number of girls getting pregnant. And even in conversations with the HISD's uh, dropout prevention team, you know, that was a common conversation as well. You know, there was a lot of teen uh, parents um, being developed and, you know, that that was you know, the unfortunate reality of having our kids confined to their homes um, and not really supervised, right? And so we saw a lot of those um, come through our program. And I just realized, I knew the problem was even more significant, even though we had like about four or five girls in the program at the time, I knew there was more out there that uh, were, were dealing with the same issue. And I want to be clear, Marvin, when you say that um, they were unsupervised, I don't think it was by choice. No, I think it was parents who had to work even yep. during COVID. They were yep. frontline or essential workers and they had no choice but to put food on the table. Yep. And, you know, it created that dynamic and that shift in many families. And again, I just think that's an untold story. 
Oh, yeah. And, and we knew for our kids, um, you know, coming into school every single day is critical for them because what we offer in the environment that we're, we're in, we place them in is the best environment for them to learn. And unfortunately, you know, when we talked about like virtual learning, it just wasn't suitable for many of our kids because the environments were not set up for success. Um, and a lot of our kids are couch surfing. So a lot of them don't have stable housing. And so um, I think that's the, that's the challenge that we saw. And we knew that was going to be a big burden for us to overcome in the pandemic. And so we, we were really just trying to do the best we could to service as many kids as possible during that time period. What advice do you give to young people who feel disenfranchised, disconnected, and maybe despair? I just never, never lose hope. You know, I, I think, um, you know, you've got to, you got to keep working your plan. You got to write your goals down and you got to, you know, whatever you want to accomplish in life, you got to make sure you're, that is something you're every day working towards and you're reminding yourself what that plan is and really working that action plan on how you're going to get there. I think a lot of them get discouraged and defeated by setbacks and sometimes they're small and sometimes they're big. Um, but what I often remind my kids are is about, you know, is that that's part of life. You know, there's going to be setbacks. That's like eight million stories is not what eight million stories was today is not what eight million stories was in 2017, where I was really trying to figure out how to build a program for kids when people thought I was crazy, right? Starting something, $80,000 in the hole, didn't have money for my salary and only could cover one salary. And I was, everyone's livelihood was dependent on me. You know, that, that was a lot of pressure and stress. And I just believed in something. I believed in what I was doing and I bet on myself. And I tell my kids, always bet on yourself. When you bet on yourself, you're going to wake up every single day working hard to prove the people that, you know, tell you you can't do it and don't believe that you can accomplish. And, you know, even though, you know, people look at 8 million stories and say, oh, this is a great program. We still got a lot of work to do. We're nowhere close to where I aspire for us to be and the impact that I want us to have not just in Houston, but across the country. And I wake up every day with that, that on my back and, and saying like, I'm never getting comfortable, you know, because I do interviews or I do wearing magazines or we get these sponsorships, you know, we, we, we got to still work and we got to still be prepared to serve the toughest kid that is on its, his, his or her way to our door. And we, we got to be ready to serve those kids. And we never want to be caught off, off guard and not ready to serve. Um, and so I'm always, and this year is a big push for us because we're coming out of the pandemic and things are different, right? Our kids are different. The environments are different. The, the amount of talent in the community that can w do this work with you is limited now because everyone's priorities have shifted. People want to do remote work more than just kind of like coming in and COVID has continues to scare people. And, you know, it's, it's valid reasons. And so how do we as an organization restructure, reshift so we can continue to do the work at a high level. And that's going to be the challenge of me as a leader uh, to get my troops in order and get everybody on the same page and get us to continue to press forward and even do it at a higher capacity. The message to our listeners is to bet on yourself. Uh, Marvin, you mentioned that your your father, how many uh, kids do you have? Oh, I have no kids. <laughs> He met his oh, kids thought, at 8 million oh, stories. Oh, I thought about, I thought about kids at 8 million <laughs> stories. That's why I call them my kids. Oh, okay. I got you. Well, I'm I'm a father of two and uh, I have a 13-month-old, which now in my world, my biggest issues are sleep 
you know, trying to get him to go to sleep every single night. He's working up at 1 a.m., 3 a.m., but you're dealing with issues on a whole larger scale. Um, what advice would you give to parents and families who may have a young person who's struggling, but they are unable to help or reach them? Just be patient, you know, just be patient. Just keep chiming at it. You know, like, you know, what I, what I try to do with my kids is meet them where they are. Right. You know, and some of them have some really bad habits and some of them are make it easier to get them what they need and get them where they need to go. Um, and that's okay. And that you, I, I go into the work with that mindset of understanding that all of my kids are not going to be the same. And some of them will push you and pull you and, you know, challenge you in ways that you never imagined. And that's, that's part of the work. That's how you're going to grow. And so my message to parents is just really try to understand and meet their kids where they are and always use an emotionally constant tone. You know, like kids don't respond to the, the, the yelling and, um, you know, the aggressive language, it's just going to shut them down. And you want to always keep those communication lines open. Um, even if there's, they're not doing things you want them to do as soon as you want them to do it. And when you want them to do it, you've got to make sure you preserve that communication line because the minute they are no longer um, listening to you or communicating some of the things that they're dealing with, now you have a bigger problem, right? Because you're just playing a guessing game and you're trying to, you know, hope that they're making the right decisions instead of, you know, really being in a place where, you know, before they make something, a poor decision, they're going to come to you first and try to get your opinion about things and your advice. And you want that to always be a constant. And so, you know, I, I know a lot of my kids are still in the streets. They're still doing things that I don't approve of, but I got to, I just got to meet them there. And my goal is to ultimately hopefully show them that through the success of um, the program that they're in with us, that, you know, this does this behavior that could land them in jail or in, in worse situations, they don't no longer need to engage in it. And so I, I just really try to um, take it one conversation at a time and, and just really try to part words of wisdom on our kids. And I think that's something that a lot of parents could apply as well. And I know it's hard because that's your flesh and you're like, they better listen to me because I'm paying the bills and I'm putting the roof over their heads. But I think it's just a day, different day and age in terms of how we're serving our, our kids are being raised and we've got social media that's influencing them and you know we, we just got to take a different approach to, to get the outcomes that we want yeah most definitely it's a new generation and as far as communication we have to learn that the way we were communicated to as kids this generation doesn't respond to that so we gotta adapt right but M marvin what is your call to action or what is our call to action to the community um, I, I think we got to really start looking ways for us, looking at ways for us to engage with our most vulnerable and disconnected youth. They are, they are a burden for our community. And, you know, the more we ignore the needs that they have and the, the challenges that they go through every day, the more it's going to cost us financially. And, and just from a societal, societal standpoint, you know, we're not going to see our communities thrive because there's not going to be another generation of young people to continue to carry that that torch of excellence, right? We, we've got to start to figure out how do we get our kids on the right track to empowering these communities that need leaders um, desperately, right? To continue to do the work um, as our seniors are, you know, they're, they're starting to get tired, right? They've been doing this for so long and they continue to be the voice, but they've got to have this, some, they have to have something to pass uh, their legacy down to. And I think it needs to be our youth um, and our youth that, you know, are, are often most disconnected are the ones that have the natural born leadership skills to take on the work that's ahead. And, 
And I just think it's important that, you know, our citizens in Houston, you know, community members in Houston just really uh, take interest in finding ways to work with our at-risk youth. They, they need us more now than ever, especially coming out of this pan- pandemic. Let's build on that thought, Marvin. And can you give us some tactics on how the community can get involved and support your efforts? Yeah, I mean, finding ways to mentor, uh, tutor youth, um, you know, spending some time. Uh, we're trying to build a uh, middle school boys program uh, called Sons of Promise. And that's going to be something we're going to do on Saturdays. And we did it on Saturdays just so we can have more people be able to join us um, in the workshops that we're doing with kids. And, you know, we're going to do some workshops with young ladies, um, you know, just really, I think, mentoring and, and just tutoring, I think, could be a really great entry point um, to and then career coaching, right? Helping kids work on their resume and, and do all the things that they need to do to be successful, I think is going to be critical. So. I know that you, when you were younger, thought maybe you were going to have a career in pro sports. Yeah. Then you dipped your toe into investment banking, financial services. Yeah. And now I feel like you're really leaning into your life's purpose. So yeah. that's very clear. But if you weren't in this line of work, Marvin, what would you be doing? I, I think I would. My dream job would be to work like at a Nike or Adidas and do like social impact work, like community work. Okay, Nike, Adidas, are you listening? Yeah, that's, you, that's you may my have a, a corporate social responsibility job. officer here. Yeah. I think yeah. uh, I think that's something I, I think this naturally is my gift. And I just would love to do that for like sports because I think sports brands have such a powerful impact on our communities, especially our most underserved. And I would love to leverage um, my skills and that platform to really do deeper work in our communities, Um, you know, getting behind like a brand like a Nike or Adidas uh, to do that work. I I think it would just be really dope to do that. That, That's my, that's my next job. If I, if I, if I, if I get the chance to do that, hopefully they're listening. You're putting it out there, so it'll come back to you when the time is right. You mentioned um, Dr. McFadden earlier, but who else has shown up in your space as a hero? I I just think my mother, my love for children and just to help people in general comes so much from her. Like, you know, I just see my mom always just have a giving heart. I I think she gets it from my grandmother, who's, you know, pride and joy of the family, too. May she rest in peace. But you know, opening your doors and, you know, being so giving of yourself, you know, putting, sacrificing her, her wants and desires so that I could be successful, I think is something I've carried because, you know, I do the same with the kids that I work with, right? You know, before 8 Million Stories had any funding, you know, I was taking money out of my pocket and, you know, expensing it on kids and I never questioned it. I didn't think twice. And yeah, if I was short on cash for the week of things to do for fun for myself, I was okay with that because that kid needed it more than me at that time. And, you know, that I still continue to do that till this day. Um, I think that's how you pay it forward. And that's how you continue to be blessed in the work um, that you do. I think what I do right now living is amazing, right? You know, to get the chance to impact the lives of children every single day, you know, that's a, that's a, a blessing that I don't take for granted. And I don't think I would have gotten that if it wasn't for my mother and how she raised me to, you know, be respectful and kind and helpful to others. And, you know, I, I, you know, I continue to give her the 
credit every single day, even though she gets worried. She's like, man, don't kids are going to stress you out. I was like, mom, I, I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> let's, let's take you back to the 17 year old Marvin. Um, if you can go back to a younger you, what advice yep. would you give yourself? Um, have more fun for sure. Um, I, I think I put too much, I, I didn't really, when I think about my childhood, I didn't really think, I don't think I got the most out of it as I, as I should have. Right. I think I put so much pressure on myself trying to, you know, chase the dream of going to get a job at wall street. And I did that. Right. But it came with a lot of sacrifices. It came with less time, you know, building relationships with my friends and, you know, being a kid or a young teenager. And, and I think if I had to give myself advice, it would be to not take myself so seriously and to really uh, cherish the youth of my, you know, my life and, and the young of the, well, my, my teenage years more so um, than I do now. And so I, I'm trying to, you know, make up for lost time now as an adult and trying to really find that balance. But I, if I could do it again, I would, you know, have more fun when I was that age. Yeah. And I think what you're trying to say is, you know, and you start to realize this as you get older of how short life is. And you're just to our listeners out there is just have a little bit of balance, you know, but when you're trying to get in the zone, what's on your playlist? Is it the, is it the, is it the Wu-Tang clan? Is the, the no, Biggie? Is it no, the it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit, it's some J, it's some Biggie, it's some Pac and some uh, Mob Deep. So and, and some nods for sure. I'm a, I'm a Queens guy at heart. So like those are the classics and those are the things that I get really excited about. Even some Lost Boys, too, because, you know, I can draw connections to the things that they're saying. Um, and it reminds me of my, my childhood. And, you know, anytime I think about like how I came up and how I grew up and what I overcame, that's always my motivation. Like every morning when I'm in the gym, like. I just go to those roots. I'm like, I'm not supposed to be here. This is not the story I'm supposed to tell. And that's usually what inspires me. And you mentioned, Jim, and usually this is the last question we ask to close the show. But what are besides, you know, putting yourself out there, giving up yourself and your time to the community? What, what are your hobbies for yourself? Man, working out. I'm really into ATVs. I'm building this. Uh, I'm trying to become a. Uh, 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 an expert in cigars um, and, and, and whiskey. And so, you know, that's just kind of like how I just unwind myself. And so I, I'm really into the outdoors um, and just doing like extreme activities. So this weekend I'm going to try to go skydiving. I got to psych myself up, but. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. So that's my goal. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your story. Very inspirational and uh, motivating. So thank you tonight. I appreciate it. Co-founder and executive director of 8 Million Stories, Marvin Pierre. Thanks to everyone for tuning in. To the athletes, keep being the best you can be. Run your race with excellence. To the parents of athletes, let's continue to support our children with patience, grace, and understanding. Learning to recognize how to truly become the guides and the stewards that we are supposed to be. To everyone, be willing to share your experiences to help others along their paths and always be open to the wisdom that comes your way. For more information about the 21 Podcast, 21 Media, and services provided by Train Harder 21, visit the website at drewlasker.com. 
and follow us across all social media platforms. Remember to add this podcast to your playlist, subscribe, rate, and review. Until next episode of 21, train harder.